0: So in the body fluids, you have this sort of, it's segregating the signal to noise. You know, you have an enormous population of EVs, but then you have only a certain percentage of the ones that are actually thrown out from the cancer. So what we're trying to look at is at the nanoscale, if you look at these at a very high resolution, are there features that would help us to only isolate the ones that have the oncogenic uh, driven factor?
1: I'm Dr. Ross Carter, and it's time to start the Regenerative Warrior Podcast now. Two things before we get started. The views expressed by our guests are not necessarily those of Dr. Carter or this podcast. One of our podcast partners has just announced special pricing for our listeners. Wharton's Jelly Allograft for $475 per cc. You heard that right, only $475. White papers are available. This is for a limited time, so act now. Why pay double or triple the price from other providers? To learn more or to order, text your name and the word Jelly J E L L Y to five six one nine six two one two three one. Write that down. It's five six one nine six two one two three one. On with the show. Welcome to the Regenerative Warrior Podcast. My name is Dr. Ross Carter, and today's special guest is Dr. Shivani. Dharma, thank you. Thank you for uh, joining us today.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, there's a lot going on. You know, it's a very exciting but also challenging field. You know, it depends on which side of the line you fall. You know, there are tremendous benefits, of course, in terms of therapy, in terms of diagnostics. Yeah. But also there are challenges, and sometimes we seem to forget. You know, in this over enthusiasm of what the challenges are. Uh, and really, and you know, I like <laughs> that's some of my work really addresses those challenges and why they're important and why it's really uh, necessary to address those challenges now than later.
1: So, what do you think the major challenges in we're talking about exosomes, correct?
0: Right. And if you looked at the literature and what is happening in the field, you know, we said, okay, we call them the exosomes, and it doesn't matter what we call them, but really, you know, what these vesicles are, there's a huge diversity, there's a huge heterogeneity, which is both an opportunity and a challenge. Like saying, okay, the cell secretome, you know, all the paracrine factors, and what is that most element in these particles you know however you isolate them however you study them but really you know what we have is like a sort of a maze where we know some of the elements but in a holistic view if, if you were to ask you know like what exactly is the composition of an exosome or an extracellular vesicle we don't know we know at the population level you know like oh this is overexpressed this is underexpressed really you know like if I give you, okay, this is the exosome and what particles are in there, nobody knows. And so that's really a key issue here where we say, okay, now we know some part of it, so let's call it the exosome. Only the particles that have these features are the exosomes, you know. And then somebody else comes up with a study, they have the same starting material, they isolate it in a different way, and then it's like, oh, you know, maybe those were co isolates that you know, we thought were part of the extracellular vesicles or the exosomes. So then we go back to scratch, you know, like, oh, you know, this is how we define the exosomes. So really there's like a lot of back and forth that is happening, which is good that, you know, more people are getting involved in it. It's a very exciting field. But that is also, you know, opening up these questions like, you know, our results don't match. Why? You know, that's like the base, like the very fundamental Aspect of science that it shouldn't be just in my hands or in your hands, but you know, it has to be a robust system.
1: So, you deal with cancerous situations. What tell us about that now? Exosomes are produced by pretty much every cell as as a way of communication, correct? And cancerous cells are the same in regards to they communicate through exosomes as well. And my understanding is that these exosomes can influence and actually create another cancerous cell. Is that correct as well?
0: Most interesting is, you know, for example, the metastatic niche that they create. So the thing is that the cancer protein, some of the very specific oncoproteins The cells, they're throwing out these exosomes that do have these oncoproteins, and that's the ones that circulate and they're causing metastatic niches, you know, in distant sites. So what happens is it's like a two-way trigger so that you have these vehicles that have these oncoproteins, but they're also receptive to where they're going, you know. So some of the integrants, they're very specific to whether this exosome is going to go to the bone or is it going elsewhere to the brain and how it is metastasizing. So it's like a two-way, you know, communication where the contents of your exosomes or EVs that's thrown out by specific cancer cells, that's important. But also, you know, it has triggers, but then, you know, which ones get triggered first or most, you know, which ones are really the driving forces of, either, you know, developing the metastatic, uh, you know, environment there, changing the hypoxia conditions. That's driven both by, you know, how is it talking to the cell at that particular distant site? So really, that specificity is the most sort of interesting and complex in terms of why the cell would only package these oncoproteins in certain fashion and what are the triggers, you know, why it goes to this particular site and how that is triggering the response, and then influencing other like non-cancer cells. So like you said, you know, changing the phenotype, but also the genotype of the cells that are the targets. that's really, you know, like a sort of a very uh, complex cell-to-cell interaction that Not just in cancer, but also in other diseases, you know, now that we're discovering how communication happens. So it's a very new field. And the more we looked at, you know, how specific these particles are, they're not random. They're influenced by different factors, but they have a very specific target and a very specific cargo. And it's just like, I would say our inability to tap into that resource, you know, because of like technological limitations because they're small, they're heterogeneous, you know, and we have very uh, limited tools to address, you know, to study them. But the more we learn about it, you know, it just gets more and more fascinating.
1: But it seems like what I've seen recently is that the more we see, the better the outcomes we can do for so many different conditions. I mean, what I've seen in regards to the use of placental-derived mesenchymal stem cell exosomes seems just remarkable. I was wondering, so my thought was this. Okay, so let's say there is a cancerous cell and you have bombarded that area or with, say, mesenchymal stem cell exosomes to hopefully put positive messages into the mind of this cell. Can it convert back and be the solution to solve a cell that's gone away? is that possible
0: right but you know what is also important is to get to the mechanistic aspect of it i mean one thing is there's a correlation you know we see an effect but the thing is you know like now that i'm sure you're very familiar like the stem cell field right so you inject stem cells and it worked and that was great right right and now we've sort of moved to, okay, you know, maybe stems, like the cells themselves are not important. Right. You know, these factors they're secreting, they're important, right? Right. So as a scientist, I think my concern is we really need to get to the mechanistic aspect of it as well, because maybe, you know, it is just like some combination of soluble factors that that is important. So when we have these studies, which look at, you know, the beneficial aspects of exosomes or EVs, right? There has to be sort of a careful control in terms of the effects that we are looking at. And maybe like for some people, the, the approach is if it works, you know, that's great. I mean, which is, yes, you know, that I agree, you know, like if it is helping people, that's one aspect of it. But as a scientist, I'm like, I need to know how it is working, you know, so maybe we can make it work even better or,
1: you know. Right. Don't you think that it would be beneficial Before, you know, I I don't know, beneficial. Sometimes, you know, I don't know how specific things work. Like, I don't know how exactly electricity works, but I love that I can utilize it to achieve a result of seeing light or whatever, for example. So do I need to study it and understand everything that happens to create that process, or can I just enjoy the benefits without actually knowing everything? Because, first of all, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a scientist. I'm more of someone who uses, tries to make things practical and useful and try to help people. And I think the scientific, correct me if I'm incorrect, but it's more of a, let's be very cautious and understand everything before we start moving forward.
0: So, you know, like Mike then said, so a lot of my work also is catered towards translational aspect of, you know, if we were to design a biomarker, okay, you know how can we harness the uniqueness of exosomes rather than you know having to get a tissue okay do we see a signal which is worth you know as diagnostic potential so not to say i sort of appreciate the translational aspect of what could be useful, what could be helpful to the patients eventually, you know, uh, in terms of our diagnostic biomarker and so on. But my trouble with the exosomes in particular is, so we have clinical trials, right? We have a few clinical trials going on. A few? A few. Don't we have
1: thousands of them?
0: (laughs) Well, there are lots, but let's just say now that, At least have have some controls, and you know, looking at very specific. Some of them are okay. Let's also do exosomes, you know. So the it's more like a tag on to what was initially like a clinical trial, and then exosome was the add on arm. But one of the things I don't know. I mean, a lot of people might not have noticed is how are you manufacturing those particles? How are you isolating them? So. I mean, that's where my concern lies, you know, would it not be great to have a platform where let's say you have a patient, you know, and you injected exosomes in one person, right? And this is assuming, you know, they're, they're all beneficial and it works and it's great, although yes. we might not understand what the mechanism is. Right. And it doesn't work in the other person, you know, maybe yes. it's a different batch. Maybe, you know, they were isolated completely differently. So wouldn't it be nice to have like a benchmark which says, okay, at least I know this is what I injected, because there are lots of different ways that you can isolate them, you know, you can isolate endosomes or other secretome or particles, whatever you call them, and something works, right? Let's just assume something works very well. But wouldn't it be nice to be able to have this work at least, you know, like, most of the time.
1: Well, you're talking about standardization, I assume.
0: You know, it's like you have these reactors, you know, you're isolating them, but sometimes you start with the primary cells and maybe they are different than, you know, if you have a continuous culture. So there's like no way to say like what have you put in for either for your downstream biomarker analysis or for your therapy. How would you ever know if you don't look carefully now? So really, that's my concern. And also in terms of the clinical trials or, you know, like a device or a diagnostic, you really have to, I mean, yes, I I would say if it's an extremely cautious approach, but it might be worth looking at.
1: No, I can appreciate that. I mean, it's good to be cautious and try to know what you're doing. But there are also the other components of there are lots of people that have disease conditions where they don't have as many options to what they can do to save themselves. So should we be cautious with that? Isn't that the whole purpose of the 21st Century Cure Act? Wasn't that to to fast track all these different regenerative ideas, I guess, so that we could help people that are, say, terminally ill or need a solution, you know, and we can't wait. Five years before we figure this stuff out
0: right right so you know like no one approach is the only way forward so what i'm guessing is when we do spend all this effort doing clinical trials and we know like you know we would not be able to compare one to the other it's like something which is i mean it's not a situation which cannot be fixed at the moment even if let's say whatever the existing situation is right If everybody was on the same page, at least between those trials, people can talk and share their findings. But in terms of like the patients who don't have any other choice, you know, it seems like hope is a big thing, right? So anything that could be beneficial, that gives people hope thats you know, in the end, it's all about, okay, if you can help somebody, that's great. So, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing as I see a lot of the stem cell world moving into the EV world. Because it's just a matter of where the hope lies, you know, of a better treatment or a better diagnosis or a faster diagnosis.
1: Well, um, yes, because most doctors are finally realizing that it's not the stem cell that actually causes the action to occur. It's the communication of that. And if you could take out the intermediary here in this case, as a some type of cell and remove that and then wouldn't that be a better approach? Is just using the signals to signal your body to do whatever you're wanting the result to be.
0: I'm not very familiar with like people who actually are using them, you know, in education for therapy. Like personally, like I don't, you know, have any sort of uh, communication with with that community.
1: So you've never used them yourself.
0: Well, there are exosomes everywhere, right? So I'm sure I must have used them.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You've, you know? you've drank milk before. I know that they have uh, exosomes in milk. but, uh, no, have you ever thought or considered trying a exosome product that was maybe made from a mesenchymal stem cell, a placental-derived exosome? You know they're available, right?:
0: Now, using them as in a clinical trial or using no. them?: you
1: Personally, know? putting them in your body to see what your body reacts to.
0: No, I wouldn't do that. You know, I mean, no. they're naturally existing and that's fine. But yes. I, I think I'm more like a hardcore researcher. A yes. experiment.
1: Sorry for the interruption again. To find out more about this speaker, become a speaker on our show. Have Dr. Carter present at your event or podcast. Learn more about coaching, consulting, tissue allographs, exosomes, supplements, legal help, or how to create a million dollar business card and dominate your area. We're here to help you. Just text your name and any question to 561-962-1231. Write that down. That's 561-962-1231. Or go to our website at drrosscarter.com to learn more. Don't forget about our current $475 Warden's Jelly special. On with the show. Right.
0: I'm not pre to see what happens, you know?
1: <laughs> I was talking to a doctor in Germany, I don't know what, I forget his name, and he actually made some, and then he used them to see how they worked on them.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I I work with people who are interested in putting curcumin in the exosomes because the bioavailability and so on. You mean- People who are interested in green tea, because that's, again, like the bioavailability issue is a concern. And so- now just the biocompatibility and the stability of the exosomes. So like I am in touch with a lot of people who are interested for drug delivery applications. You know, I
1: think that's uh, where this is going because, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the latest numbers of how much money has been invested by all these companies. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars have been put in to the use or to the investigation of these exosomes or whatever extrospective EVs and how they can be used for customized drug delivery, correct?
0: Like you take a drug, which has seen a lot of different steps of regulation and so on, right? And then you add an element of, okay, you know, is it more biocompatible or, you know, does it have lower side effects? So there, you know, I would say like the risk analysis is much lower compared to, you know, okay, we don't know what these particles are. Maybe they're beneficial and let's try it out. You know, so it's just a matter of perspective. So, like, yes, there are risks associated, but then maybe there are ways to mitigate some of those risks. So, for example, you know, when you're looking at drug delivery applications for uh, that are available drugs, you know, and they've been tested and tried, and then look at the beneficial aspects of exosomes, that's something that I think is worth.
1: Well, that's what I was saying. I was thinking that the drug delivery is really where exosomes are going to be are headed in terms of companies who were using these are going to be using these in conjunction with a a pharmaceutical company so that they can have their own little drug delivery systems. (laughs) It might be interesting to see how that works out.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely.
1: Because can't we customize like a cell or customize these, let's say a stem cell or another type of cell so that we can make it have a target. Like, let's say it was, we need it as something in the kidneys so that we would customize a cell and use the exosome so that they would home to the kidney and do their job. Is that how? Right.
0: I mean, that's why you would have an exosome compared to a liposome because you can still functionalize the liposome, but you don't have like the functional receptors that you potentially could use, you know, in terms of using the extracellular vessel.
1: What's the difference between the exosome and the liposome?
0: So the liposome is basically just a synthetic lipid vesicle. I mean, there have been drugs that have done, like, tremendously well. For example, the Abraxen, right? Instead of the free drug, you have the lipid formulation. So somebody Okay you know he is like he's pretty well known patrick soon he was the one who came up with this idea of putting this drug in albumin and then having a liposome so which means that it protects the drug you know it increases its circulation life and it helps to target then you can have targeted receptors that it goes only potentially to the cancer and not kill the other cells so that's specificity right that's the main deal because Killing a cell is not like a big deal. It's killing it selectively, you know, not kill everything, but only the cancer. So that's where the selectivity comes in. But then, you know, the issue with the exosomes is they have these natural receptors that you can also engineer, but then will come the heterogeneity of you will have different types and variabilities and how to control those. So again, in terms of like the immune compatibility. The exosomes do very well you know, you can take exosomes from the person and that way you don't run the risk of this immune-compromised situation. But the thing is, you don't have very good control because the cell will throw out exosomes and some other things and some other factors that we may not be looking for or they're under our radar or not. So that's the thing, you know, there is a huge interest in, instead of the liposome, it's the synthetic, you know, it accumulates in your kidneys and, and, you know, it has its own side effects use the extracellular vesicles, but then controlling that natural secretion of the cells and knowing that heterogeneity. Even if we knew only 20%, 40% of the EVs are the ones that would carry the receptors and the drug that you would need, that would be fine if we knew just how to segregate them or at least have a benchmark to say, okay, this is a 40% potent sample which is fine you know and then you look at its dosage and its drug and and so on
1: but isn't that just a matter of a little more time i mean we should be able to figure that out that doesn't sound like too complex of a problem to
0: right right and you know there are not to say like if there are challenges there are a lot of efforts as well i'm pretty sure you're you know if you've looked at the exosomes you've looked at how many the NIH is very invested in the EVs, although, of course, the industry is taking over. But yes. for example, I have a NCI, the National Cancer Institute funded uh, grant, which is just looking at how rigor and reproducibility works for the EVs. Because they solely focus on, okay, this is one aspect we didn't pay attention, you know, but we need this for diagnostics, for therapy, you know, for drug delivery. So let's look at this aspect. Then you have the extracellular RNA because that's the main, you know, like how it changes the genotype, right? The beauty or the uniqueness, so to say, of the EVs is it has functional RNA molecules which don't, like like you don't have these circulating microRNAs, you know, in your body fluids. That was a very well accepted norm in the field. But then you have these particles in the exosomes and that creates a very great opportunity in terms of biomarkers. So that's again where the more we look into these and what their contents are and what their features are, it's very interesting. It's just that, there are aspects of it, which is, okay, we need more technology. So there are people who are working in the technology aspects. We need to see if it works in the clinics and that's the effort there. So, which is great. And I think at, at some point, you know, it'll all merge together. So it's such a new field and with the added complexity that these are small and these are heterogeneous. Right. So, you know, say small he, now we look at cells in a lot of different ways we have a lot of different techniques to deal with a cell this is like a micron or few microns in size right the trouble comes when we have a lot of biologists and a lot of clinicians and we have a vesicle which is in the nano size so this is a feature where really in our bioengineering and nanotechnology we got to talk to these people you know and this is where I come in because, yes, I'm interested in the clinical aspect of it. I would love to see these work in the clinic, you know. But also the fact that what is in that this small 100-nanometer particle? Can we have better tools, technologies to say, okay, I can tell you these are the proteins on top of this particle that you're interested in. Those are the kind of things that we could do a lot with the cells because they're big. But even to look at these particles, you know, we still go to age-old electron microscopy. Right. And we define them as the cup shaped structure. Which really was, you know, because everybody looked at the same way because that was the only way to look at it, you know. So everybody stained them and everybody looked at them and they said, Oh, we agree this is a cup shaped structure. No. (laughs) That's a limitation of how you're looking at it, you know. So in terms of like starting to look at what these particles are and break that back, even in the optical microscopy, now we have super resolution, you know, stead in this form. That's opening up new areas. Now we can tag them and see where they're going. You know, we could see the cells where they're going, but we had no idea where these EVs coming from and going in the body. We can do that now. So I think, you know, as there's more interest in the field, there's more money in the field, right, that drives innovation as well. So yep. now we have tools and ways, you know, to say, okay, these are very important particles, so let's track them down and see where they're going. And some of that work is where we're saying, okay, they have these certain integrants. Now, why is it going to the bone? Why is it going to the brain? And what is it there in the brain or the bone? Why you know, these particles... They could have gone anywhere Why to this specific location. So I think it's a combination of like, because they're so small, you know, they're difficult to study. And so we said, okay, let's not study them. You know, let's just use them. That's also an approach, (laughs) but that's not, you
1: know, know.
0: right. In summary, that's where I think my interest lies also in really like exploring them and taking that challenge that these are small and heterogeneous, but we still can get around that problem.
1: What is it you typically do in the the lab now? I mean, what is your area that you're focused right now on?
0: So one of the things that I focus is on these cancer-derived exosomes. And so, you know, there's this like almost every cell, throws out exosomes right but then there are normal exosomes and there are the cancerous ones so in the body fluids you have this sort of it's segregating the signal to noise you know you have an enormous population of EVs, but then you have only a certain percentage of the ones that are actually thrown out from the cancer. So what we're trying to look at is at the nanoscale, if you look at these at a very high resolution, very closely, you know, like as close as potentially one could to this day and age, are there features that would help us to only isolate the ones that have the oncogenic uh, driven factor.
1: And when the word oncogenic, tell me what that definition is.
0: So for example, uh, the glioblastoma, that's just one uh, cancer that I particularly focus on because there are no like blood-based biomarkers. The only way is to actually get a tissue. I mean, it's a highly aggressive, very heterogeneous cancer, but getting a tissue from the brain is, is not
1: not easy. You
0: have one shot and that's also not and that gives you a snapshot of the cancer. The thing with the glioblastoma is that it changes dramatically, you know, in response to therapy. And also there's like a lot of intratumoral heterogeneity. So even let's say if you get the tissue sample, you don't have a good, it's like a one-time snapshot of what the molecular features of that tumor are and that's where the liquid biopsy comes in where you know if you have a way to actually look at the overall heterogeneity or the molecular profile you know and hopefully in a non-invasive way either through like the csf i wouldn't call it it's not minimally invasive it's still invasive but it's not you know as bad as having a plain biopsy right so for example in the glioblastoma there's this egfr receptor which is on the it's like a surface receptor and then the ones that have this mutation the egfr v3 it's known that those cells even in, in cancers they throw out tremendous amounts like enormous amounts of evs and these evs they also carry the v3 mutant the oncogenic protein, there's an indication that only some of the population of the EVs that are thrown out have these uh, V3 variation. So what we're looking at is at the single particle level, are these EVs biomechanically, structurally, biomolecularly, are they distinct? And if that's the case, can we engineer like a molecular sieve that would only selectively pick those that are coming from the cancer and that'll really increase our signal to noise ratio in in our diagnostic biomarkers. And also, you know, you look at them in the plasma. So if you were to look at these particles, you know, in the plasma, could you then as a dynamic you know, as your tumor is evolving, either the intratumoral heterogeneity or in response to the therapy, can you have a signature that you can read off dynamically? So that's what I'm, I'm interested in at the moment. And also, for example, we're looking at breast tissue specific biopsies. So the idea is the closer you are to the source of the tumor that is throwing out these particles, you know, if those EVs are coming from this tumor, right, the closer you Proximity you have, the better chances you have of picking up those signals. So, for example, the ductal lavage, which is you know, you look at the ducts and then you try to look at the EVs in those fluids to see whether you have you can differentiate between in situ carcinoma and the metastatic one. It's like looking at different components of the body fluids, like the CSF and the plasma and the ductal lavage, to see you know. Try to pick out the signals from the cancer EVs that typically are below the detection sensitivity of standard methods. So something that proteomics or genomics would have a hard time picking up, could nanotechnology and you know, looking at them at the single uh, particle level, would that give us better clues?
1: Thanks for listening to our podcast. Please subscribe to be notified of all new episodes. And also like and share this to help us grow. To find out more about this speaker, become a speaker on our show, to have Dr. Carter present at your event or podcast, learn more about coaching, consulting, tissue allographs, exosomes, supplements, legal health, or how to create a million-dollar business card to dominate your local area, we're here to help you. Just text your name and your question to 561 561- Write that down. That's 561-962-1231. Or you can go to our website at drrosscarter.com. That's D-R-R-O-S-S-C-A-R-T-E-R.com to learn more. Until next time, this is Dr. Ross Carter signing off.